Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our series in the second part of World History, where today we're going to begin with podcast number nine, continuing our discussion of the French Revolution. In podcast number eight, we started the revolution by looking at the monarchy's challenge in the sense that there was issues with the treasury, in the sense that there was no money. Uh, Bankruptcy has a way of causing a lot of unrest in individual homes as well as countries as a whole. So the fact that, again, that the treasury was bankrupt, there was also other domestic problems in the sense of meteorology, with hailstorms wiping out uh, French crops throughout the uh, summer of 1788, followed by a severe drought, and then one of the harshest winters on record. Other than that, things were great in France, hence the reason why, again, political unrest was just ripe for breaking out. We then also discussed the convening of the Estates General, where I went through and discussed the first, second, and third estate. And if nothing more, we remember that the most important part is the fact that the Estates voted as a whole. So every vote would either be three to zero or two to one. There really were no other, there was no other possibility. Either 3-0, everybody agrees, or 2-1 to with two of the estates agreeing and one estate disagreeing. Needless to say, the clergy as the members of the first estate, along with the royal class, the nobility as part of the second estate, constantly were voting together and essentially voting the third estate out and making them the minority party, even though they were 70% of the population because of course the peasants are the commoners are what made up the third estate. We looked at that tennis court oath, how King Louis XVI was panicking in his own way, trying to stem the tide of a political unrest that had the notion of breaking out into political revolution as had done in the British colonies in the decade prior. As a result, the Bastille prison would begin what became known as the French Revolution on July 14th, 1789. The Declaration of the Rights of Man were drawn up, and then a rebuilding of the French government, establishing a constitutional monarch, as we talked about, and all the limitations and the rights of that. We ended that podcast, though, by discussing the enemies of the new government. Remember that just because a political revolution comes to a close, that doesn't mean truly that everybody lived happily ever after. That works well in a nursery rhyme and fairy tale. But in reality, there's almost no record in human history of that ever being the case. The enemies within the French government were many. The Roman Catholic Church clearly wanted to turn back the tide of change, as did the aristocracy who had fled France. And even the peasants, some of them thought that there was simply not enough change. 
And please note for my American listeners to think, hey, we did it right. At least when our political revolution came to a close, boom, that was it. That's absolutely false. As my podcasts in American history also explain, there were enemies within the new American government days after. The Treaty of Paris was signed in September of 1783, establishing an independent United States of America. One might say, yeah, but those individuals not happy with it, their names have kind of gone lost to history. Arguably, one of those names is the most famous in the American revolutionary history, none other than Thomas Jefferson, who truly thought that a political revolution, by and large, was necessary every 20 years. He literally thought every generation had the right to rebel and overturn the existing government. Remember, too, that with the American Revolution, we started out with a government that was broken from the moment the parchment was was signed with what became known as the Confederation Congress, which was our first form of government. Mythically, we tend to believe that we went right from the American Revolution to the Constitutional Convention and then received our Constitution, signed it, accepted it, and lived happily ever after. And even that wasn't true. The American Revolution ended with the Confederation Congress as our form of government already is already established. It would be just a few years, just a small number of years, before Americans by and large would realize this Confederation government, it's not working. Well, can anybody blame us? We had no experience with self or independent rule, any more than these revolutionaries in France had any notion of how also to self-govern, even though they created a new form of government, a constitutional monarchy. Change is difficult. Change is painful. In order to accept change, as Dr. M. Scott Peck stresses over and over again in his trilogy on the road less traveled, the first one published in 1978 and subsequent ones published throughout the up to the 1990s. As he says, accepting change means something has to die, a former way of doing something, a former way of interpreting something, a former way of thinking has to die if you're going to accept new. Because of those enemies within the newly established French government, what should have ended the political revolution in France would turn out to only be the beginning. So in podcast number nine, we're going to discuss what these people did not know as that revolution was thought to come to a close as it would break out once again in June of 1793. This would become known as the second phase of the French Revolution, known because of its bloody signature of 25,000 needless casualties, the reign of terror. Threatened by the less radical and worse, the conservative, the most radical elements within the French assembly sought to eliminate any resistance to further government change. Extremists declared war as a way to rally around the flag and create and increase French sentiment for their own domestic policy. Extremists declared war on almost all neighboring countries, including England. If you want to paralyze people in fear to get them easy to, to be controlled, all you have to do is wage war. And the thought of being attacked by a foreign nation 
whether real or imagined, is enough to discipline any population to adhering to the new government. Therefore, radicals led by names that many of you might be familiar with from your American history classes and world history classes, Robespierre, Danton, and Carnot, slowly eliminated any moderates in the government, anybody that was disagreeing with their interpretation of the facts and their discipline towards rallying around the flag to declare war on the neighboring countries. The problem was, starting in June of 1793, that it was simply too much change and way too fast. And as a result, it created suspicion equally as fast. Suspicion within the French, the government, the country of France, suspicion, of course, with the foreign governments who had no reason before to ever ally with one another, now suddenly had a reason because all of the neighboring countries around them, Austria, Italy, Germany, even though, again, these are separate principalities in Germany as well as in Italy, these countries and these principalities had a reason to ally with England because they all had a common denominator, a rogue French government that was declaring war on them for no reason. What's worse is that domestically, the politics was being turned upside down within France, specifically in Paris, because anybody that disagreed with the trilogy of those radical leaders, Robespierre, Danton, and Carnot, all of them would be executed in one of the most recent forms of public execution, that named after the French doctor, Dr. Guillotine, who would then be beheaded in the public square is a sign of a, is a message to be sent everywhere that anybody that disagrees with the leadership of the new French government faced the same fate. Please know that Dr. Guillotine had no intention of creating an instrument of death for the purposes of war. Rather, as his title implies, he was a, he was a medical doctor. What he wanted to know is if the human brain could still control the face and facial parts after it is severed from the rest of the body. Dr. Guillotine had hoped that individuals that might have been negatively afflicted physically, whether due to war, whether due to a simple and unfortunate accident, that an individual who is writhing in pain due to injuries that there is no way that they could possibly be able to heal to put them out of their misery by severing their head to eliminate the pain felt by the lower extremities that were injured, destroyed, or amputated as a result of an accident. What Dr. Guillotine wanted to know is, did the brain still function? And if so, how long after that brain and head was separated from the neck and torso? I perhaps thinking about it now should have warned you that this may not be the podcast that you want to listen to when you're having lunch or dinner, especially if your entree of choice has anything to do with spaghetti sauce or meatballs or why don't I just stop right now? I think we get the idea. But that was the point, though, of the guillotine. And that's what Dr. Guillotine wanted to know. Does and can the human being receive information and respond accordingly? 
when the head is separated from the torso. Ironically enough, in the papers that followed, it turned out that for a few seconds, the brain was still able to recognize that which was being heard, judged by the facial recognition right before the moment of death. And again, we're talking very, very few milliseconds here. And again, debatable whether that is actually true or not. But the guillotine was now the public execution weapon of choice for the three radicals. And it would be over the next 11 months that no less than roughly 2,000 to 2,500 individuals would be killed every month who disagreed with the new radical government. Finally, with the number of executions continuing to go up month after month, eventually it got to the point that no one felt safe from the radicals themselves. All you needed was somebody to blame another individual for not being sympathetic to the new government or harboring any kind of anger to, to the new government. All that needed to be brought forth was a witness to speak against you. Have a disagreement with your neighbor, a friend that suddenly, a friendship that turned south, make sure, make darn sure that they don't happen to report you as being unsympathetic and unpatriotic to the French cause. Because again, all you needed was one witness to find yourself lying on the guillotine waiting for that massive blade to come down. As a result, the moderates that initially had fled Paris gathered together once again in the height of the fact that war was going on as without externally to France as well as an internal war taking place as well. They finally got together starting in 19, 1794 when what became known as the third phase of the French Revolution, the Thermidorian Reaction. Starting in 1794, they convened a constitutional convention where only moderates were invited to attend. Amnesty would be granted for most moderate political prisoners, individuals that were on death row for merely professing the truth or expressing their opinion that the French government has gone too far. Amnesty would be granted for this group. Radical groups on either the far right or the far left were immediately dissolved. And if they protested, even they would be executed, which is the reason why the likes of those radicals and their followers were also eventually executed. It is not as though the Thermidorian reaction or phase three was 100% innocent and free of bloodshed. Not at all. Because as they those moderates found out, in some cases, only death was going to wipe out the extreme radical groups. So with this political re reconstruction, the idea of a constitutional monarchy was rejected. In place was put a bicameral legislature, a directory that would be fully dependent on the military. And all of those changes would be subjected to the voters, the citizens of France, who could vote well, echoing, of course, the American sentiment and who could vote, it was unnecessarily, but at the reflection of the times, male only. However, the French deviated from who could vote, unlike the, way, the case in America. In the United States, you did have to be male, but they also made sure that you had to be 21 years or older in the United States, as well as a property owner. 
The French modified that approach. They modified their openness to who could vote in French national elections. To vote in France, yes, it had to be male, but they didn't throw an age limit on it or minimum. The reason being is because you either did have to be a property owner or you had to have served in the French military. So if you were a soldier or a property owner and male, then you could vote. That would bring, and other parts of this, would bring the third phase of the political revolution in France to a close. However, as late as October 1795, a civilian rebellion broke out once again right outside of the house or the building where the French assembly met, the directory. And an individual, a military man by and large of no necessary name recognition, saw another potential violent phase of a, the political revolution to reignite. And as a result, brought a series of weapons up high onto the steps of the French building and more or less gave the crowd what became known as a whiff of grape shot. In other words, he shot shrapnel at the rebellious crowd, which disbanded and then simmered down. The rebellious crowd trying to reignite a revolution was disbanded in what they thought would bring the violence to an end forever in France. And that would turn out to be the exact opposite case because the soldier that disbanded the crowd would immediately be brought in for official recognition for his bravery and his intellect in dispersing the rebellious crowd. And the name of that French soldier was none other, of course, than Napoleon Bonaparte. When we return in our 10th podcast on World History 2, we're going then to look at the age of Napoleon. How, after that event, did Napoleon rise up to the point of being called an emperor in a time when the European continent seemed to have no tolerance for empire, much less emperors? How did he consolidate so much power so quickly? And how did it dissolve practically overnight? By 1815. Well, I didn't get that far in the textbook, so let me look about look that up between now and then. In the meantime, if you have any questions about what was discussed today, please go to my website, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. If you liked what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. 